So how is everybody doing today? Yeah. Okay. All right, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to continue in Matthew. Hello, small child back there. How are you? All right. Does everyone have their Bibles ready? Matthew 14. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, uh, thank you for the, the pleasure it is to be here with my brothers and sisters and to get into your word and to allow uh, your spirit to speak to our hearts. And I pray, God, that that's exactly what you would do in this place tonight, Lord, as you move in our midst, Lord, that you would... Uh, <coughs> that your your word would accomplish you know whatever it is uh that that it's purposed to do tonight in our hearts um, and i do just believe that you have something individually and specifically for us i pray god that we would just be open and receptive to it and lord i praise you for it in jesus name we pray amen amen okay so uh today we begin a new chapter <laughs> Sorry, my volume go up. Hi, Gil. I saw you. You reach for it as soon as I. <laughs> Sorry, very inconsistent. Um, and, and we find Jesus here. He's not speaking uh, in parables um, as he did in chapter thirteen, and, and he's not being critically evaluated by his neighbors. Uh, we have him back uh, to the business of, of working miracles, and today it's it's just overcoming obstacles. This whole chapter seems to be. Just one interruption after another of these forced deviations that bring about uh, miraculous works of God and, um, and uh, the, the, these problems that Christ is going to encounter that, that work out for our satisfaction and his glorification. So it's a, it's a unique chapter. It's a fantastic one. There's two great parts of it, and uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't give Sam both of them, right? He's coming back next next Thursday to teach, and uh, and 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 it felt like too much, you know, being too generous of me to allow him to have both of them. So I was like, I'll deal with the heavy, daunting part, hopefully quickly, and uh, then we can just get to the the wonderful miracle part. And then, hey, he can have walking on water. So, you know, there's, there's something for everyone uh, in this chapter. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get through a large chunk of it today. Um, so we'll begin in verse 1. At that time, Herod, the, the Tetrarch, uh, heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that is why uh, miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. And, 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 and you got to respect the boldness of John here in this passage. You know, here's a man who lived in the desert 
you know, donned uh, camel's hair for clothing and a leather belt wrapped about his being, and he cared little about what people uh, said of him or thought of him as he's, you know, chowing down on locusts every day for supper, and uh, and and how he would be received by them or or interpreted by him, and 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 here you have the, this man Herod. And, and he's looking upon John, and he's no doubt just fascinated by this unique individual. And that's right, small baby. John is hilarious. And, uh, and, and he decides to go out to the desert, and he's going to grant John, uh, this lowly man, his lofty presence. And, uh, and, and he just goes out there thinking, well, let's, let's see what this novelty has to say. And uh, what does John say? John, John says, Herod? Uh, you're in sin, and and it's it's pretty crazy to consider. You know, I think Herod assumed that that John would be impressed by him. You know, he's going to cower before him and and just greatly respect him, and and instead John says, you know, uh, you got problems, right? You put away your former wife, and you've taken your half brother's wife, and uh, and and it's wrong. What you've done is wrong, and what you've done is sin. And, and, and in the search for your own uh, self-satisfaction, right, you've hurt this woman that you were married to. And you've torn your family asunder with this uh, adulterous and incestuous relationship. And, and John would say, Herod, you're in sin. And Herod would say, well, John, now you're in prison. And right, it's, it's, a, it's an insane thing to consider. Right? John, uh, in prison, I'm sure he had plenty of time to think about this conversation. Right? He would replay it over and over again, sitting in his cell, thinking, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been so direct. You know, maybe, maybe that was the problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe my presentation was off. And maybe I should have been more gentle and selected my words more carefully and, and phrased the whole thing a little bit more you know, gingerly. Uh, but, but I bet that in John, there was not a second thought given to whether or not he should have opened his mouth. I, I, you know, cause that's just not what I see in John, right? There was never a question of whether it was better for him to keep quiet in the circumstances, right? And, 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 and while it might've been, uh, better for him, right? It, it wouldn't have been what was best for Herod, right? And John did the difficult thing of confronting Herod uh, knowing full well the consequences of his actions. And I think that we can learn a lot from this. You know, and, and, and the result of what John said might have hurt Herod, uh, you know, emotionally, you know, or, or maybe affected him in some way uh, spiritually, psychologically. You could definitely say that the heavier consequences fell upon John because he's the guy that landed in prison as a result of this. But, but, but none of that mattered and none of that should stop us and certainly didn't stop him. We shouldn't shy away from such discussions. And I think we do. I think we justify not having these conversations a lot in our mind, thinking that, well, I don't want to have that conversation with that person because I don't want to appear judgmental. Right? I don't want to appear to be hyper-spiritual. But in one sense, when we do that, we're only justifying our own uselessness. Right? Uh, it, it, you know, I think what good would a doctor be if he shied away uh, from a diagnosis that he, with his trained eye, could see full well? 
right? You know, uh, about a month ago, I had this mysterious thing on the bottom of my foot, and, and it was reaching just biblical plague levels, right? It was, this, it was this disgusting aberration of humanity, right? And my doctor uh, couldn't get me in to see a podiatrist uh, to have it removed, and, and I went to two urgent care facilities, and, and one of the urgent care doctors took a look at it, and, and, and he kind of recoiled and said, I, I don't know what that thing is. And he started sending in his nurses so that they can all, you know, uh, you know, catch a gander at the sideshow act that was sitting in the sitting in the room there. And, and, and I and I couldn't bring myself to to pay the or the emergency room fees, uh, so I pleaded with my doctor, and I just said, "Listen, you, you gotta just dig this thing out for me." And finally, he agreed. And and when the day came, I, I could tell that he was excited about the moment. Right? I mean, you gotta think about it, right? A, a primary care physician, day in and day out, people are walking in with with coughs and runny noses, and and he's he's looking at this, and he's like, "Oh, you know, it's a." It's a minor surgery to spice up my schedule for the day, right? And, and, uh, and, and he gave me a couple of shots, and he was jabbing me with that needle right there in the, the gaping hole with protruding flesh. And, 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 and then he, he gets in there, and he hacks off the knob, and then he starts digging around inside my foot looking for, uh, looking for the shard of glass or piece of wood that he was sure uh, that, that was in there that was causing this irritation and scar tissue kind of eruption. And he explored to no avail and sent away the, the fleshy lump to a lab to be examined. Right, and I went back in there a few days ago to get the stitches taken out. And a couple of them had already burst, you know. And I, just, I left him in there an irresponsibly long time. Uh, I went like five days over when he told me I should have gone back there. Uh, but, but you know, I finally went back in, and, and, and he cut it off, and he was, he was thumbing through his chart, and he said, you know what, uh, it's not pyogenic granuloma, as I thought it was. It was I wrote it down, because Lord knows I'm not even going to say it right, but what's the point? And he said it was an ulcer, ulcerated capillary hemangioma, right? And I don't know what that is. Maybe some of you that are, are much smarter than I am can tell me. But, but, but a grave look fell upon his face as, as he read it and, and was, was examining it in his chart. And he said, you know, those are often cancerous. And then he closed the file and turned around to walk out of the room. <laughs> and and, and I, I stopped him and I, I said, wait, 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 wait a minute, cancerous? I mean, what, 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 was it cancerous? Was it, do I have cancer? And, and, and he turned around, and he opened up the file, and he checked it again. And he was like, oh, no. <laughs> and and, and I mean, how could you say something like that and then just merely walk out of the room? And, 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 but, but, but I saw that, and I saw something in, in that moment that I do habitually and daily. right? And, and it perfectly captures the, this, this conflict with John. Where we have uh, the, the chart and file on the world because God gave it to us in his word. And it says one simple word. It says sin. Right? And, and there is sin. And it's there. In each and every one of us. Right? There's sin. And, and, and it's so easy to, to, to just, we'll say, well, boy, that's going to be, that's gonna be a, a conversation that I really would rather not have. You know, so maybe I'll just close the chart and quietly waltz out of the room and, and hope that they don't ask a question that's going to drag me back in to have this gnarly conversation, right? And, 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 but, the, but the fact is uh, that, 
that I would rather have the bad news. Because at least in the bad news, I have before me a choice. Right? Because at least in someone, you know, opens up the file and says, hey, you know what, there's sin here. Uh, I, I, I can say, okay, now what do I do about that sin? And, and with that doctor, that man with the trained eye, we can work towards a resolution. But I will have no such option if my doctor considers it enough to, to speak kind of cryptically and, and to leave quickly. And, and John just said, you know, that's not what I'm going to do. You, you, you have sin. You have sin in your life. And, and he was brave and he was bold and he was right. But what was done to him was not right. And it's often the consequences uh, of taking the brave and bold stand and, and interjecting into someone's life. There's sin there, right? And Herod threw him in prison as a result. Now, there's some confusion when it comes to Herod because there's so many Herods in the Bible. And this isn't Herod the Great, the, the Herod that slaughtered the babies upon hearing the news of the birth of Christ. Uh, that was his father, All right? This is... This is uh, Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, and, and he wasn't like his father, right? He, he wasn't ambitious and treacherous. He simply wanted to, to live lavishy, lavishly and, and party uninhibitedly. And, and here was this man, John, that came into his life and, and said something that could potentially put an end to his party. And so the only solution... Was to put John away and to silence him, and and it was at just such an occasion that brought about John's violent end that we read about in verse six. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she said, "Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist." And the king was distressed, but. Because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that the request be granted. And he had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl um, who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So here you have Herodias' daughter, and she does this. This seductive dance is, is what the Greek word lends itself to in the presence of her stepfather. And it's just this kind of gross and pagan atmosphere. And he's so overwhelmed and aroused by this dance that, that he promises her whatever she asks up to half of his kingdom. And she says, I want that man's head. And she was given it. Um, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 6. It's interesting to read some of the other accounts of this story that Herod often visited John in prison. And, and, and he would visit him because he liked to hear him. And it's kind of a weird thing to consider. I mean, here's this guy, and, and we, we have kind of a one-sided and, and uh, I don't know, maybe base interpretation of what's happening here because we think, well, John's the guy that said something mean and nasty to Herod, and then Herod hated him and eventually killed him. But in Mark chapter 6, you see this different dynamic to the relationship where he's constantly going to him to have this conversation with him. 
And and to some degree, you, you got to come to the conclusion that he just respected John's honesty. And and uh, if we uh, and if it weren't for his foolish friends at the party, and if it wasn't for this attempt to save face, John very well might uh, might have not had this sort of violent end. And. And I think that it was, I don't want to get too heavy. I mean, there's a baby here. We're talking about beheading. But, but, but I think that, that, there's a, that there's a truth, right, to the reality that, let's, uh, let's watch a video about it. No, I'm kidding. Let's, uh, there's a truth to the reality of uh, this, this, single, this singular action left an indelible mark upon Herod, and, and it was the constant refrain of his mind and memory for the rest of his days. This decision to end John the Baptist. And here's a man that's surrounded by these kind of fair weather friends. Right? And, and then there arose this man. This man, John, that didn't want anything from him. Right? He only wanted to reach out to him and say, listen, there's a better more honorable way to live your life, right? And, and at night, maybe when the parties are over and all the liquor was gone and all of his friends had gone home, Herod would go into the prison and sit with John in his cell and say, could you just tell me of Jesus again? Can you tell me if there's a way out? of this cycle that I'm stuck in. Can you tell me if there's a better way? Can you show me another way? And they would speak about sin and they would speak about righteousness and salvation. Now we can watch the heading video. No, I'm kidding. And, they, and John would stand again uh, <laughs> before him as, as a doctor, right? Giving him this bad news all over again. And, and, and it's in the beginning of that bad news that, that there's, uh, there's the genesis. Hey, this could be the commercial. There's the genesis, right, of a cure. It's the first step in the acknowledgement, right, of, of salvation, uh, the acceptance uh, of someone to get you out of this devastating and detrimental situation is to acknowledge that there's a choice that has to be made. And it's the choice between choosing this thing, this sin, or choosing him. And, and they would sit in the cell and they would have this conversation and he would say, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And the, and the choice is entirely up to you. And often he would hear him, but it was on this day that he made his decision, and he chose sin. Right, he chose sin, and it sealed his fate. He chose her. You know, there, it's interesting to look at the life of Herod beyond this point, and it's, and it's not discussed in the Bible, but we know, uh, based on fairly accurate historical records, that, that Herod was exiled later in his life, uh, he made some unsavory political stance, and when a new emperor came into power, he was sent away. 
and and in his in his exile, he he was allowed uh, one thing to take with him, and it was Herodias. He left into exile with his with his sin, and the man, and his sin, and it was the course that he chose for himself. And John said, you know, this, this won't be denied you. This decision is entirely up to you. And during his last days in exile, I can imagine no doubt that it was this, these moments in the cell with John that constantly replayed in the man's mind. This man, John, that cared so much for me. This man, John, that, that said what was uncomfortable to me. He put himself and our relationship in harm's way so that he could reach out to me because of his deep concern and compassion for me. And I put him away. And I had him executed. And I had him decapitated so that I could have this, my sin. And that's exactly what he got. And that's all he got. That's all he, would allow, he was allowed in his exile. And he would end up, uh, you know, I imagine those, those lonely days of his latter years in the middle of the night, wandering around and, and asking himself the same questions that he would ask when his audience was John, saying, tell me again of this Jesus, this Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if there were only a man that could tell me of another way of how to get off this path, and and I would say uh, maybe my my most earnest exhortation would be to simply not silence the voices that challenge you, lest in your later years they haunt you. It's a man that's that's worth keeping around, that puts themselves and their relationship with you in harm's way to tell us the difficult truth, the thing that they can see maybe from their vantage point or with their trained eye, uh, who says, listen, it's not because I'm being judgmental. It's not because I'm being hyper-spiritual. It's because I love you that I'm willing to share this with you. It's because of my great concern and compassion that I reach out to you. Uh, heed those voices, uh, or you know, I fear that many will end up like Herod, just being haunted by them. Um, but we do continue in the story to a, a more, more light and easy passage. In verse 13, it's when Jesus heard what had happened, right? What had happened to John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from towns. And when Jesus landed, and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now Jesus' response is completely natural. John the Baptist was his cousin. And he would need and he certainly deserved time to mourn John's, uh, you know, and you, you don't want to say untimely. I mean, Jesus, he would know that the time of all these things, but, but certainly his, his violent and tragic end. Uh, but the crowds wouldn't allow it. They pressed on him. Right, and 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 they were they were pleading with them, and and now Jesus, you see his thought of self dissipate in a moment, 
right? And he's filled with compassion for the crowd and overwhelmed with the work of ministry. And uh, what we see uh, set before us is one of only two miracles that is recorded in all four Gospels, right? So as such, its significance really can't be exaggerated and its volume of truth can never be exhausted. I'm, I'm only going to scratch the surface with, with what the, the Lord can say to us through this, but, but we'll get into it in verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish uh, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. We're going to break this up into three major parts. And if you're a note taker, the first part uh, uh, submitted for your consideration is the problem, right? It is the problem. Um, and it hasn't changed in over 2,000 years since this happened. Uh, people are hungry, right? The people are hungry. And there's something uh, that eats away at at a person in hunger. You know, while I was in uh, while I was in Germany, right, uh, we had this three day fast, and I couldn't figure out whether it was just like a great spiritual decision uh, by the Bible College director out there to you know have the whole campus fast for three days, or if they were just like short on food money, you know, <laughs> they're like, this is, a, this is a great financial decision, you know, uh, but so for three days, there's no food, all right, and they were like, hey, you know, you could fast or you can go buy food for yourself, but, you know, and, and taking a hard spiritual stance, we're going to fast, you know, because we're, we're godly uh, or poor, who knows, um, but for three days, uh, and, and after the third day, I, I don't know how long, maybe some of you have fasted, maybe you're like, I've fasted for 40 days. I'm a spiritual titan. Uh, I'm not that guy. Um, but on the third day, you're kind of not that hungry anymore. I don't know if you've been through this. You kind of, you know, you reach some sort of equilibrium and you feel sort of normal. But if on that third day, you know that your fast is going to end and you can smell, you know, the food being prepared, it, 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 it creates this sort of insanity in your body, uh, th this sort of crazed frenzy uh, that you know that you're going to eat soon and, and uh, the, that every minute is, is going to feel like an hour until you get to that moment. And so I decided that the smart thing for me to do, rather than you know sit up in the, the villa and smell the food being prepared downstairs, would be to leave the house and go for a walk in the forest, right? We had this great forest right behind uh, the villa there, and and I would often go up there, you know, to kind of walk around and pray, and and I I began walking, and I continued walking, and I I spent a good deal of it thinking, 
and, and, and then I, I reached a point where, where clearly I hadn't been thinking for a good while. And uh, when I started thinking again, I realized that I had no idea where I was, less of an idea of how to find my way back, <laughs> and little strength to keep going. Right? I, was, I was completely lost in this forest, and I realized that I was entirely incapable of satisfying this need in and of myself. Uh, that, that, uh, that if there is going to be help for me uh, to satisfy the hunger in me, it has to come from without. It can't be met from within. And I know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking, a man of your substantial girth can go without food for more than three days. Your help can come from within for a little while longer. Let's be real, right? But, but, there's, but, but even a man of, of my mass, right? You can't go forever without a contribution from outside of yourself. And, and so uh, I, was, I was walking and thinking, and, and it was already uh, past the time when everybody had eaten the food that would have been served back at the villa. And, and it, was, it was evening now, and it was getting dark, and I had no light outside of, uh, outside of my little phone, a little flippy phone that I brought out there that was completely useless because I didn't have international service. But uh, I, and I was wandering around outside there, and, 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 I, and I began to think, well, okay, it's three days, and I smelled the food, which got my mind going and stirred the frenzy in me to, 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 to meet my, my famished appetite. And, and so I began to look at the trees and to think, well, I could eat those leaves. Right? They're green, and that's what salads are. They're basically just leaves. <laughs> so so I, I thought, well, I could, I could eat the leaves from the tree, or I could pull up and devour the grass from the ground, and, and, and well, they won't thoroughly nourish me. Uh, and, and then it began to dawn on me, well, at best, uh, that stuff would probably pass right through me. And at worst, it, it might very well poison me. And, and, and lost out there in the forest, uh, and, uh, this, this picture began to come full circle, you know, of the, of the, of the multitude that, that had been long in the world and lost in the forest. And their hunger was great, and they could find no substance that was out there to fill up on. And, and at best, the things that they would snatch at would be something that would pass right through them and not nourish them. At worst, the things that they would uh, grab up from the ground to eat would be things that could very well poison them. And they're hungry, and they're finding nothing. And the, the fact that I was helpless to feed my belly uh, only solidified the, the the idea. Ask Mary for a better word. That 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 I was still utterly helpless to fill my soul. And the problem is your first point. And and the problem is great. The problem is great. And now your second point. The disciples came to him, and they. And they say, we've noticed the problem, and I've got the solution. And so your second point is that it's our solution. So first you have the problem, now you have the solution. And they say, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an easy solution. And, you know, Jesus, you should really listen to our solution. 
because uh, after all, we, we've, we've been around for quite a while and it's getting late according to my watch and, and this is what I think you ought to do. And this is exactly what we do in prayer, right? We see the problem, we've identified the problem, and we come to Jesus and we say, okay, well, this is the solution, Jesus. Make it go away. And isn't that the prayer of the disciples? They've identified the problem and they say, okay, Jesus, this is what you need to do. You need to just make it all go away. And we bend our knees and we furrow our brow and we say, God, it's high time you send this problem on its merry way. That's the solution. This is my advice to you. The one way that it ought to be solved is to make it go away. And that is a solution. And sometimes we're, we're incredibly satisfied with that as the solution to our problems. And, and I don't know, I, I think that this is still the, the cry of my heart when I see a big problem. And I'm, I'm constantly begging for this to be the easy and quick solution, but I don't think it's the best one. After reading this text and, and praying over it all week, I, I'm convinced that, that, that while the solution is, is valid to look at your problems and say, okay, this is a big problem, now, Jesus, just make it go away. A better solution would be to say, Jesus, this is a big problem, and I'm going to introduce this problem to you. And you do whatever you think is right to do with it. They looked at the problem. They, they gave it their best analysis, and they said, it's big, we're small. Lord, sweep it away. And, and they were so right to a point, you know, to say it's big, we're small, but they should have just said, Lord, you, you're beyond measure, and you, you are without boundaries, you are capable. I can do very little against such a thing, but you can do all things. So, Lord, what would you desire to do in this situation? You know what? Daniel Jacobs, it's funny because I talked about him last Thursday, didn't I? Right? So it's like two Thursdays in a row. This guy gets top billing his sermon illustrations. But, um, <clears throat> but Daniel Jacobs, he's, he's one of my friends. He's the concrete guy that I talked about last Thursday. And he came up to my house at, on Sunday, last Sunday. And um, he was telling me about New Zealand. He's been out to New Zealand twice. You know, just, just an odd guy, this Daniel Jacobs. Sold all of his worldly possessions and was like, I think I'll wander around the jungle for a while and so that's what he did and uh, and it fascinates me so we often talk about New Zealand and he was saying uh, that while he was out there one time uh, and I believe it was the first time uh, he ran out of money so he went to a farm and was like hey do you need someone to help out around here and the 70 year old lady that was running the farm said I'd love a, I'd love a hand and um, so he worked for this woman for several weeks day in day out you know, toiling in her fields, caring for her cattle, you know, and just shining as a light before her. And one day, uh, she finally just broke down and asked him the question that I'm sure was on her mind for a long time. And she would say, you know, I know that you're American, but is there something distinctly different about you beyond your nationality? And, and so he told her of his Jesus. And her response to it was, who is this Jesus? And, and it might surprise you to know that New Zealand 
is is one of, if not, or has one of, if not the highest population of atheists in any industrialized nation, right? And they're not atheists because uh, they they they've rejected him. They're atheists by default because they've never even heard this story, right? So so in this nation's few large cities, you know, coastal cities, they have a representative population of Christians, but it never penetrates the interior of New Zealand because uh, the people out there, they just live their whole lives in isolation, right? So this 70-year-old citizen of an industrialized nation, uh, in no way a third world person had never heard of him, never heard the story of Jesus. And and she sat there wide-eyed and completely receptive, as he discussed him with her and, 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 and his, his salvation and, and, the, and his sacrifice. And, and, and I sat across from him and, and eating my Pringles. And, and I, said, I said, so you're telling me, wait a minute, so you're telling me that, that these English-speaking industrialized cities or citizens uh, – Living in isolation, have never heard about Jesus. He says they haven't. And I said, and they're open to him. And he said they are. And I said, let's go. Right? And, and his eyes were, were ablaze and my heart was a flutter. And, and, and we just beamed with excitement as we began to, you know, plot our course and, and you know, lay out our strategy. And, and the task is set before us and it's a lofty task. Save New Zealand. You know, and, and so we, 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 uh, we began the project at hand. Eventually I put away the Pringles and, and we got to work on my porch and, and we were tearing out. Uh, the brickwork on our porch that day because it was just sinking in and, and it was kind of a terrifying thing to walk up to our house. You know, it's like you're going to be swallowed by a brick monster in our porch. Uh, so we got in there and we ripped out all the old bricks and we're doing this work and I'm you know, carting them all away and dragging them behind the house and, and hours are passing by, you know, toiling under the, the hot sun on uh, on that Sunday and turning over in our minds this missionary endeavor and and endeavor and the enormity of it is growing like this groaning crowd this multitude amassing before us and i began to think about it logically and listen here's here's the reality um the interior of new zealand is entirely agricultural right you have you know, a thousand plus acre farms with maybe two or three people living on them. You have entire cities with a population of 50 that are sprawling hundreds of miles and they're centrally, you know, grounded around a singular building, a pub, you know, and, and, and I began to think, what can we do for this country? You know, and, and it's too vast and it's enormous and it's spread out. And how could we have any sort of impact? Our resources are small. With what we have and what we're capable of, maybe we can go to one farm and impact one family, but we can do very little as far as large-scale uh, ministry for this pool of population. And, and after the long, hard day, we sat upon a bench that was formerly on our porch and is now in our front yard. And 
we looked at each other and said, maybe we should just forget about the whole thing. You know, and we can't do it. We don't have enough resources for it. And, and listen, this is the reality of it. Because I have to, I have to start making sense and working towards a conclusion. Um, like my wife's pregnancy complications, my mom's aneurysms, my sister's heart condition, my brother's post-traumatic stress, I found myself in another situation saying exactly the same thing. I want this just to go away because it's too big and we are too small. I can't handle it and I don't know what to do with it. So God, it would be best if you just got rid of it. That's the thing that you should do with it, Lord. Because I am altogether insufficient to deal with this problem. And so first we see the problem. The second we see the solution, pleading with God to remove our problem, seeing our insufficiency in light of our problem. And now third, we see God's determination. And I don't know if God has ever done this to you. Um, God says this to me a lot. And it's exactly what God said to the disciples this day. And it's no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to remove this problem. I'm going to show you what I can do with it. I'm going to show you how small I can make that problem. And I'm going to show you the glory I can get from overcoming it. Uh, and, and even though your faith is weak, I want you to face that problem. That's exactly what he tells them to do in verse 16. It's a verse that I often hear in my mind. Where he just says, solve it. It's up to you to deal with it. You confront it. And so this is what they set about doing. John records in his gospel that uh, in the sixth chapter, that they sought a solution in, in a boy that left an offering. Right? And it was Andrew who spoke to this boy and brought it to the attention of the disciples that the boy gave what little he had to meet the crowd's needs. And he gave five small barley loaves. And he gave two small fish. And, and the disciples collected this and they brought it to God to pacify him. I don't believe for a moment that the disciples brought this to God and said, okay, now we have what we need to feed this crowd that's amassed. And they didn't bring it for that purpose. They, they brought it to show how ridiculous it would be to even conceive of meeting the needs of this vast problem. They brought the food to God to prove that there was absolutely nothing that they could do. And after all, uh, this, is, this is too much to be accomplished by any sort of offering. And the boy gave in naive foolishness not seeing the problem for what it is. 
right? I mean, and, and I don't know what that boy was looking at, but he clearly wasn't seeing the 5,000 that had assembled and that were starving, right? How could five small loaves and two small fish possibly feed them? And then they brought it to God and they said, well, this is what we got now, now. Are you willing to listen to us and just make it go away? So he takes the loaves, he takes the fish, and, 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 and I can see Jesus. I can see Jesus accepting this offering and looking at the boy and smiling at him and saying maybe something like, you know, oh my, with this, we will have more than enough. You know, uh, with this much, we're not only going to be able to feed all these people, We'll have basket full, full, uh, baskets filled left over when it's all said and done. This is a truly generous offering of resources. And, and, and listen, as we kind of work towards our conclusion, I want to wrap this all around a unifying theme. You see, Daniel and I, uh, we, we looked at each other and we said, you know, we're not much of, we're not much of preachers. And he got four weeks uh, to prove that. Uh, but, and, and we don't have money to go out for some lofty ministry. Our gifts, our talents, they're like barley bread. They're gritty and unsatisfying. Right? Our finances are like small fish. Right? There's, there's, they're, they're lacking substance. There's more bone to them than actual meat. And the other disciples would look at this problem and they would say, why bother? There's nothing that can be done. Uh, and they would bury their heads in books and run the numbers and say, we don't have the finances for it. There's nothing that we can do about it. So we're just not going to do anything about it. It's too much. We're too few. And, and, and we read this passage and we can find ourselves and say, maybe in the context of this miracle, we're John that's walking away from Herod. And God is pricking his heart and saying, you need to open up your mouth because what you have before you is a man that has been lost in the forest for hours and he's starving and he's in great need. And you have in your possession bread of life. You could reach out to him and give it to him. And what he does with it is perfectly uh, up to him. And it's, and it's, it's not your, your obligation to force it upon him. But, 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 you, but you can't just turn a blind eye to him and walk away from it. And I think a lot of times uh, we come to God and we have convinced ourselves of the limitations of God. And we say uh, in one breath, God, I'm giving you my life and I'm giving you everything within me. And as we say it, we're thinking, but I know me and I'm nothing. And what could God possibly accomplish that is worthwhile with someone like me? And, 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 and maybe the best thing would be for me to just go away and not even touch the problem for fear of, of maybe just making it worse. And he says, no. He says, I will not dismiss the problem and I will not dismiss using you in its solution. And that worthless bread and that insignificant fish were placed into his hands where we ought to be.
and they were lifted up to heaven and they were blessed and broken. And before we can be greatly used by him, we need to be in exactly the same place. Lifted up and blessed and broken. Broken of our pride. Broken of our self-sufficiency. Broken of our logic. Broken of everything in me that evaluates critically what can and can't be done. And placed in his hands where all things are possible. And before I'm there, nothing will be done for his glorification. This evening we might well say that we're not enough and God would look at us and say, you know what, in my hands you are more than enough. And so the question just has to simply be as we, as we close, in whose hands are we in? You know, God sees our problems, all of them, right? And, and uh, for many of them, he doesn't dismiss them and send them home. For many of them, he simply says, let's go through this together. Let's do something miraculous together. You bring your meager resources, right? You bring your, your gritty bread and your bony fish. You bring your, your shortcomings and I'll bring my miraculous abilities. And together we'll move mountains. You just place it in my hands. And place your problems in my hands. Place that person in my hands. Place yourself in my hands. And I'll lift it up to heaven. I'll bless it. I'll break it. And I'll bring wonderful things through it. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, thank you for this evening, Lord, and thank you for your Word and the the truth that it, it brings to us, Lord. The fact that it brings everything into into perspective for us, Lord, that you you love us enough to tell us the truth, Lord, that you season that truth in a way that we can respond to it and not be repelled by it. Lord, that we see the, the accurate reflection of our frailty in it. Lord, that we can assess the problem and all problems and they appear uh, enormous and insurmountable. And Lord, then, then we can take our eyes off the problem and put, their, and put them where they, where they ought to be. And it's back on you. And we can know that you're perfectly capable of things that we can't even conceive. Lord, things that wouldn't even enter into our imagination. And Lord, I, I pray, God, and, and, and for myself and for my brothers and sisters, that we would place ourselves in all of these matters that weigh heavy upon our hearts and your hands. Lord, that we would see your blessing upon them, that we would see our own breaking as we partner with you in conquering them. And Lord, that you would do great and wonderful things in our midst.
and give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.